Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. Now, as you know, occasionally we have episodes which are aimed at clinicians and therapists as opposed to patients, and this is one of those episodes. I was delighted to be joined by Anina Schmid, who is a physiotherapist and researcher to talk about radicular pain and radiculopathy and the examination. So if you are someone who is looking or helping patients with radicular pain, radiculopathy, sciatica, back pain, leg pain, and peripheral neuropathies, and you are unsure about how to conduct your sensory exam or you want to make sure that you're doing it in line with the evidence or make sure you know how to interpret it properly, then this is the episode for you. If there's something you're looking to improve, then no doubt, as I learned an awful lot during this episode, Anina will cover it in this episode. We were also joined in this episode, myself and Dave, by Adam Dobson, who, as you know from this, as I'm sure people, regular listeners to this, this show will know, has been a regular on the show. I think this is his fourth or fifth appearance now. And this episode was his brainchild, so full kudos must go out to him uh, for putting us all together in order to record this for the benefit of you guys. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I learned an awful lot on this episode. I really hope you will do too. But for now, that's it from me. I'll catch you on the next episode and leave you with the fantastic Anina Schmid. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, podcast friends and family, and welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. I'm delighted today to introduce Anina Schmid, physiotherapist and neuroscience researcher at the University of Oxford, where she heads up the Neuromusculoskeletal Health and Science Lab. Nina, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us, and welcome to the Back Pain Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's an honour. Wonderful. And I'm also joined today by uh, my co-host Dave and also Adam Dobson. Hello. Hello there, guys. Right, we'll kick off right away, if that's okay with you, Nina, but just if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and about how you became interested in radiculopathy, radicular pain, entrapment neuropathy, kind of your background, really. Yeah, I mean, I trained as a physiotherapist many years. I have, have, have had my 20 years jubilee, actually, <laughs> recently, so many years ago. And what got me interested is not actually so much radiculopathy per per se, but it was neuropathic pain and the difficulty in treating patients who have neuropathic pain compared, you know, the, to the, what I would call a bit more simple kind of nociceptive kind of presentations. And um, that really got me into a research career because I wanted to understand a bit more what exactly is going on. Why is it so difficult to, you know, to kind of manage and, and um, recover in many of these patients. And of course, in neuropathies or in neuropathic pain, very often, um, you know, you have the problem of neurological examinations and, and um, you know, looking at what is going on includes a, a careful neurological screening. So this is kind of how, how it came about. Um, I'm, I'm still practicing. So I have uh, at the moment I do one day a week. So uh, half a day in private practice, half a day in a pain clinic here in Oxford in the NHS um, where I see um, well, still mainly patients with um, neuropathic pain, even in, in, the, in the chronic pain management program. Um, but in the private practice, obviously more more acute kind of um, presentations as well. 
Brilliant. So you have your, your, your fingers in many, many different pies then to keep, your, <laughs> to keep your finger on the pulse. Now, the the astute amongst you would have noticed from the intro that Adam is also joining us today, Adam Dobson. Um, so Adam, do you want to, like to uh, you know, tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, obviously this is your brainchild, you know, why you're here today, you know, yeah. which is, <laughs> thank you why, for joining why us. Why the hell would I Yeah, be? why are you here, Adam? Yeah. Um, uh, good question. Uh, no, so I, uh, I have a, a vested interest, so I work in a back pain clinic, so I'm exposed to a lot of uh, sciatica and uh, lumbar radiculopathy. So I have a kind of invested interest in this area. Um, so that's kind of the first reason. The other reason is um, I've attended Anina's uh, Nina, uh, course, and she's a great communicator. Um, and I think she would be great. And she's, we don't see enough of Anina talking about this, <laughs> if, if I'm honest. Um, the third reason is it's such a misunderstood problem. It's very tricky for jobbing clinicians. And I think it's very easy to do it poorly. Um, and it, it'd be interesting to kind of look at that practical side for patients to, to kind of skill up maybe, or just reflect a little bit more and get a little bit better at it and, and value that side of the assessment. Cause I think patient people tend to do it very quickly or, um, or they don't really know what they're doing or how to kind of interpret that information. So Anina, I immediately thought that Anina would be a great guest. <laughs> so I, I am a little bit selfish, but, but I think <laughs> yeah. we can share, share the wealth. Fantastic. Well, it's lovely, lovely to have us with, Adam, with us, Adam. And obviously your expertise has been invaluable in the, with, with this episode, as I'm sure we'll, we'll find out. So, <laughs> <laughs> Nina, you know, if you'd like to to jump to jump straight in, then what is a radiculopathy, and you know, how does that differ from radicular pain? Yeah, exactly. So I would define radiculopathy as a lesion or a disease affecting um, or irritation affecting the nerve root, um, and which leads, by de definition, to a loss of function um, presentation. So that means patients uh, have weakness numbness or changes in reflexes, which is reduced reflexes or absent reflexes. And that is quite in contrast to radicular pain, which by definition is defined by the pain itself and the pain itself coming from the nerve root again, um, but it's quite a different mechanism because it is a gain of function mechanism. So that means in contrast to the loss of function where we don't have enough action potentials going through, in the gain of function problem, we have too many action potentials going through. So leading to pain, tingling, etc. And quite often, of course, these come mixed and we call it painful mm. radiculopathy, um, for instance. Um, but yeah, that is what I would um, label and call uh, radiculopathy. So if, if we're purely referring to just a radiculopathy, does that mean there is no pain? So if you're, if you're, when, you, when you're in, in clinic or in research or describing radiculopathy, that removes the pain from the conversation? Absolutely. So the actual definition, and if you look it up, this has been described many, many years back by, by Bokdok and the International Association for the Study of Pain. So the original definition of radiculopathy is absolutely a loss of function. Um, now, of course, very often patients do have pain and then we call it either painful radiculopathy or radiculopathy with radicular pain. Um, but you can have a completely pain-free radiculopathy. It's not very common. Um, but you can have, you know, somebody with a drop foot um, has absolutely no pain. So that is a, mo a pure motor radiculopathy. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. These are not the same thing, even though, you know, in the literature, like quite frankly, you know, kind of uh, as scientists, we have to kind of, you know, be, be a, a 
be a bit more careful in how we use the terminology because it's not just the problem in clinics that we kind of use these interchangeably, but even scientists mix them up and that is not, not really what we should be doing. No, to totally agree. And it's something which I know that all three of us listening will have, you know, you almost used interchangeably when we graduated or at university and kind of understanding the difference is vital when we're communicating with other, other practitioners. So one thing most people, when they're, when they're thinking about radiculopathy, will, they'll kind of associate it with pins and needles. Um, and a lot of clinicians will think about pins and needles. Is that a hallmark of radiculopathy or, you know, is that a gain of function as well when we're looking at the, the loss of function? Yeah, exactly. So pins and needles is a gain of function sign. It often comes with a painful radiculopathy. Um, but indeed, if you just have pins and needles and all your neurological examination in terms of loss of function is completely normal, then that is not a radiculopathy as per definition. So yeah, tingling, pins and needles, this is what we would put under the umbrella of gain of function. And that might be an indication for radicular pain, but it needs it needs to be more than just that for us yeah. to say it's radicular pain. Yeah, and then that's when the examination comes in, which obviously we're going to we're going to, to touch on later. Exactly. So then, if we sorry to interrupt, if we touch a little bit then on that on that radicular pain, how does that then differ when we're looking at pain from a, a somatic referred pain, radicular pain? How would you then kind of categorize the differences or, or look to the differences in patients? Yeah, and this is this is actually a, a big big topic. Yeah, in clinics, I would say, um, I, I mean. You know, nociceptive pain is obviously quite different from neuropathic pain. But the big question is, is radicular neuropathic pain or not? And there is a big debate out there. And in fact, just leading a, a kind of an interest group for the neuropathic pain, special interest group of the International Association for the Study of Pain, where exactly we try and kind of define what exactly is happening. I would argue that most patients with radicular pain probably have neuropathic pain. But occasionally, it can be that a radicular pain is purely nociceptive, but it's probably not very common. So if patients have tingling, um, electric shocks down their leg, sometimes burning, or these kind of aesthetic symptoms like, you know, the, the leg feels like wrapped in wool, or so, people, people use a lot of different words sometimes to describe this sensations of nerve-related pain. That yeah. definitely makes us think more about neuropathic pain and therefore probably more about radiculopathy, uh, uh, sorry, radicular pain, um, than, than proper nociceptive pain. But there is a very small proportion of patients which I believe have radicular pain and still have what we, we call it nociceptive pain. Yeah, and, the, and the, that explanation of pain is so, so important then in your subjective findings. You know, we've all had patients describe whether it's water running down your leg or bands of pain or electric shocks, or I feel like I've stepped on something and it sends a bolt of lightning up my leg. You know, these descriptors of pain are so vital. And then that understanding the patient's pain in their own language is such a valuable skill that all clinicians listening to this should really, really understand. And it's not putting words in their mouth. It's, you know, understanding and documenting their word for word explanation of their pain. Absolutely. And, you know, if I mean, if you look at the validated screening questionnaires for neuropathic pain, these are, of course, the words that are in there. Right. But I fully agree. And what I do is you listen to your patients. Right. Because you will get these words coming and I'm looking for exactly these words. Are they coming? And they will they will tend make me tend to think more about nerve related problems. Absolutely. I think that. Yeah. I mean, the interview is massively important yeah. um, in differentiating these things. Would there be any words that would take you the opposite way 
that would make you think, you know, in a patient description, this this isn't nerve related because that's another, you know, obviously can't rule it out, but you know, that would make you, you know, your needle of suspicion would go slightly the other opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, one thing is if patients can put one finger on one spot, that is usually very untypical for nerve-related pain. Nerve-related pain very often radiates somehow, projects into a limb or so. Um, so if a patient puts his finger on the back and says, this is exactly the spot and it doesn't radiate, that's unlikely to be neuropathic pain. And then quite often as well, patients, if it's more nociceptive pain, they often use words like it's aching, right? It's pulling. Um, these kind of words are, are less likely to be neuropathic pain. But we have to be careful because very often in radicular pain, at least, there is this background pain that can be nociceptive and then on top of that they have these neuropathic mm. components so they can have a yeah. background ache or they can have a nociceptive back pain and then a neuropathic leg pain like a electric shock down the leg or a burning in the leg or a tingling in the leg so these mm. things often occur together as well what we call mixed pain and that obviously sometimes makes it challenging then to kind of you know kind of try and distangle distangle what, what exactly is going on in a single patient just, just to keep on that, Adina, so um, so it's quite interesting to say, like, with the somatic kind of side of things, the, the referred pain that is, is perhaps not ridiculous or you've got that mixed bag. So increasingly, like, for clinicians, I, the hip joint itself is a somatic structure. Yeah. Um, increasingly, it's become pretty clear that that can refer into the buttock, it can refer down into the leg. Um you know, is there any kind of tips or things we should be thinking? Because we're often thinking about the lumbar spine as 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 the referrer, aren't we? As the kind of the masquerading other, when Absolutely. when in fact the actual the pelvic structures and. I mean, they can refer right down into the lower leg, can't they? Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, these are old studies, isn't it? You, you, you are familiar with those, Adam, but these are old studies where they sometimes use, you know, injection techniques or they use um, certain, you know, injecting hypertonic saline and into muscles, et cetera, and they look at referral patterns. And it's surprising, isn't it? I mean, somatic structures from the hip, also from the back, say, um, you know, kind of uh, interspinal ligaments, right, can, can radiate very far down towards the foot. So indeed, just the, the, the pain distribution itself, I am very skeptical whether that helps us much, right? It's, it's, it's that, but together with our whole clinical reasoning package of, you know, examining that hip carefully, listening to what is the patient's pattern of difficulties functionally as well. Um, so yeah, I fully agree, just a referral pattern does not really just tell us, yeah, that is absolutely coming from the nerve root or from a somatic structure. Just to say as well, I've had this chat with Tom a couple of times, Tom Jessen, and, and I think that it, it's often the case that it seems to be that the somatic referred pain, it, it's almost like we're trying to prove or disprove it's ridiculous and that the somatic is almost like the, the exclusionary um, box, isn't it? It's like, you know, they don't have these symptoms of ridiculous pain, so we must default to a somatic kind of box. I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Anyway? Yeah, I, I mean, pretty much. And that is because it's just, um, you know, the neuropathic pain has a very clear pattern that we are looking for, like, you know, can have loss of function, etc. Has has certain words that we are listening for. Um, 
Absolutely, I would agree by exclusion. But then, of course, you know, if we go by the mechanisms, there is this third classifier of, of uh, mechanistic pain that has been described by the International Association for the Study of Pain, and that is the category of nociplastic pain, which is very debated, um, uh, you know, whether that is a good um, kind of name for it and whether we should use that or not. And that is a different story, so we shouldn't go into that today. But it's true, isn't it? We we basically try and exclude neuropathic pain, but we cannot then just say, just because we exclude neuropathic pain, everything else is then either from a hip structure, proper structural problem, if that makes sense. So it could still be, you know, some, some kind of um, more especially in chronic pain patients, it can be mechanisms that have little to do with structures anymore as well. Then, I mean, I, I get a lot of patients in the clinic where they uh, they essentially present as fibromyalgia syndrome. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they satisfy that criteria very keenly. Uh, and let's say they've had investigations done that are completely normal. Um, and they have patchy pain all through the legs. You know, so it, it's kind of very easy to see that as, a somatically referred problem yeah. and, and they're perhaps over investigated yeah. to, to the point that we don't just agree upon the diagnosis and support them from that point. So they go around for like a very long periods of time, just looking for somatic structures to, to, to blame when uh, we need to think a little bit more uh, kind of cleverly, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And that is indeed exactly in the patient population that you describe, where where the pain is persistent very often, where it's quite unlikely that, you know, from an acute injury, that injury is persisting, say, for three or four years because of usual healing times, etc. And the exclusion is a good idea, but we should yeah, absolutely not just rely if we exclude neuropathic, then everything is just a structure that is somatic. I think that would be wrong. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Thank you. Nina, goes through um, almost an overview of what would constitute a relatively standard neurological exam for a suspected radiculopathy. Obviously, there's going to be vast um, uh, possible other outcomes, but if we could take kind of a, a, um, <laughs> a relatively constricted overview so we can understand the, the basis, and then there will be lots of leaves and, and sort of branches off from that. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you always have a hypothesis in your mind, isn't it, of when, when you do a neurological examination. Mm. But you also shouldn't forget that you actually want to exclude other things. And I think that is equally important when we do a neurological examination. So if you have a patient where you suspect a radiculopathy, you equally want to disprove that it's not X, Y, Z, right, basically. Um, so as a standard thing, I would always do... All three things, which is motosensory and well, well, muscle strength sensory and reflexes. So I would not do one or the other in a, in a standard screening. So I don't I don't quite mind what, what people start with usually, um, but I would definitely do myotomal strength. But remembering that you know is actually much more common that patients have a nerve injury that is not the nerve root, but that is actually the peripheral nerve trunk. So if we just simply test myotomes, we have to be aware that we might be missing um, something. Um, I would do reflexes uh, and I would do um, sensation. And for sensation as a standard, I would always do the two. I would do light touch and pinprick. 
with the idea of wanting to as comprehensively as possible cover the spectrum of the sensory fibers um, that we have. Okay. So what, how, what's your question to the patient then when you are doing the, 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 the sensor exam? You know, what do you, I mean, do you, is there a specific phrase that you use with the patient every time, you know, to, to make sure you get the same results? Yeah. So what I usually try and especially, you know, if it's, if it's unilateral problems, I compare left, right. Obviously, that might have to be very considered if it's a bilateral, suspected bilateral neuropathy. Um, but I, I usually always, um, so let me start there. So a lot of people do point testing. Yeah. So they kind of have um, dermatomal points that they test. I tend not to do that for the simple reason that how can I be sure that this is a radicular problem? Yeah. Uh, it might be not the nerve root. It might be a peripheral nerve yeah. problem. And if we only go on those points, um, we might simply leave out certain territories that, that are innervated by peripheral nerve trunks. So what I do is I go circumferential twice around the upper arm, twice around the lower arm or the, the thigh and the leg. Um, and then I do every digit from dorsally and ventrally uh, and compare that always left, right. And the question to patients is always first testing the um, unaffected side, if that exists, um, and asking, can you feel that? Is that? Would you classify that as a normal feeling here? And then go around the limb and ask, does that feel the same if I go all of, like around your limb? Yeah. Then I test it on the other side and I say, does that feel the same as on the other side? And does it feel the same all around your limb? And that's basically the kind of questions yeah. I keep asking each time I do the test. Yeah. And, and if you then sus you're suspecting a bilateral radiculopathy, mm -hmm. do you use a comparison somewhere else? So you, yeah. you know, if you're suspecting that in the lower limb, do you test the arms, the chest, the back? Ab what do you do absolutely. as a comparison? And so, for instance, if we have a lower limb problem and we suspect, you know, that this bilateral, so obviously that could be still have something to do with nerve root, could be, you know, could be diabetic neuropathy, could, could, could be myelopathy things, etc. So we need to establish a normative area. Um, so sometimes or quite often in length dependent neuropathies, that would be a proximal area. So that could be the thigh, for example, if patients have symptoms in their feet. Um, or you might have to go all the way up to the abdomen. So quite often I do use the abdomen as a control site for the foot um, as well. Now you have to just be aware that, of course, innovation density is slightly different, um, but you cannot just compare left, right, because indeed there is a risk that you might miss the sensory deficit because mm. it's bilateral. Yeah, of, of course, no. And then in terms of, no, I'm not going to get too bogged down in specifics, but this is, you know, quality information that is so useful for people. In terms of your, your physical motion of assessing sensitive, in, in terms of assessing their sensation, circular motions, dabbing motions, wiping motions with a cotton wool bud, you know, does it matter to you? Does it make a difference? Whether we use cotton wool or like pinprick neurotip stimulations, you mean? That, but also if you're using the cotton wool, you know, how you physically touch the patient with that, oh. you know, is it just a dab or is it, or is it a, a, a swab? You know, what are you yeah. doing with the, with the oh, cotton okay. wool? Okay, I see. Yeah, exactly. So I basically leave it on the skin and I go all around. I see. Um, uh, importantly, and I like that you already say cotton wool because I see it very often in clinics that people use their fingers or they use, you know, and, and again, I would probably advise you not to do that because simply, you know, you might have very cold fingers and patients might, feel something else and what you want yeah. them to feel. So you basically want to 
test light touch. So that is a cotton wool, a neutral kind of thing or tissue paper. Um, but yeah, indeed, I, I basically just stay on the skin and I go all the way around. But I don't think it's wrong to, you know, to dab uh, all around and keep dabbing, but it probably just takes a bit more time. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And it's, but it gives you the valuable information. So it's, it's obviously going to be worth it. And then something which I know is a bit of a talking point on online, on Twitter, as most things seem to be these days, is do you do the, you know, obviously you have a you know, more advanced exam, but, but do you do a basic radiculopathy sensory SMR exam on every low back pain patient? Or do you wait until you have some pain or some reported symptoms of radicular pain and radiculopathy until you do it? You know, how do you judge what exam you do there? Yeah. So as a rule of thumb in my clinic, and of course, you know, to every rule of thumb, there might be <laughs> exceptions, but as a rule of thumb, if something, if there's a pain and it radiates, I will check the neurological examination. So even if a patient has low back pain that radiates into the buttock, that is enough for me to do a neurological examination. Yeah. But if a patient has a pain that is localized to one point right over L5S1 or something like that, then maybe you can discuss, right, ha, ha, what the priority is of your neurological examination. And it might depend on your setting yeah. as well. The other thing is, of course, if you have um, subjective clues that point you towards something neurological going on, weakness, giving way, um, numbness, uh, tingling, all these kind of things will always trigger a neurological examination yeah. as well. So these are... The, the kind of thinking to be quite honest that maybe you know my my patient population that i see is very biased but i would say 90 percent of my patients I, I perform a neurological examination yeah. but of course that might be different if you're working in a in a different setting yeah. and i guess it's, it's different you know when I, when I first graduated and when i was university you know i, I did a, a, a i say a full neurological examination what i would count as a full basic neurological examination basic SMR on all lower back pain patients. But I felt that was more for my learning. But then as the difficulty is with that, is then you occasionally will pick up things that yeah. might not have been relevant. You know, prime example, people after you know, any knee surgery have, you know, patchy sensory loss over the over a scar. Some might have just had a bruise and they get a bit of a loss change of sensation over the lower leg as well. And then it's how you decide how much weight to put on that finding if they've got no other findings or no other subjective history as well. So that is a bit of a, a, a clinical conundrum sometimes, really. Absolutely. And you know, the key, and I think this is probably the most important message, is the key with the neurological examination is that single items are not very valid in isolation. So the main thing is you have to make that puzzle fit. If you have something that doesn't fit, then either something strange goes on and we need to be careful, right? That can happen. Or indeed, it might not be what you suspect, um, for instance, a radiculopathy. So you have to make it fit as an example. yeah. So you have a patient 70 years of age, bilateral absent ankle reflexes, has uh, symptoms in the feet, but everything else is completely normal. Um, no changes in sensation, absolutely no changes in motor uh, strength. So that makes you think, and the pain is not neuropathic in nature, that makes you think maybe that is just normal aging process. And that, uh, you know, the, the, about, you know, about 23% of patients over 60 lose their ankle reflexes, mm. even if they're healthy. Um, so that might just be an incidental finding. 
Um, but of course, if you have bilateral ankle uh, reflexes absent, plus you have sensation changes and you have difficulties with a gait, for instance, and a tactic gait, etc., you, you find a clonus, then of course your suspicion immediately goes yeah. into a completely different direction. So you 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 have to make things somehow fit. Um, and, you know, not every single piece fits, but clinicians are really good in making pictures fit. Um, and that is the main thing that you have to do in a neurological examination. The same way as we do it with a shoulder exam or with a knee exam, it's not any different for the neurological yeah. examination. Just to, just to keep on that, Anina, um, so so that that's a key point, like making it fit. So yeah. so all I see is patients with back and back related leg symptoms. Um, and I think that, you know, you, you can problem solve like some sensory changes in the leg. It doesn't quite fit a, like a dermatomal pattern. There aren't any other features that would make you think that, that it was kind of dermatomal, but, but it's there. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we're, and we're trying to put it in a box we kind of say, could it be like diabetic neuropathy, but that patient doesn't have any symptoms of diabetes. How important is it then that we square away every sensory change, for instance, yeah. like to, to the detriment of trying to make everything fit? Yeah, exactly. Um, so if you have absolute, I mean, there is obviously such a thing as a pure sensory neuropathy. It, it does happen and quite often it happens in, in the kind of, Length-dependent neuropathies, it's usually one of the first signs that you will find. So we have to be sensitive. If, if, we, you know, if we have sensory abnormalities, we should not just discard them because there is absent motor things. But indeed, you know, if things don't fit, if you don't have the suspicion of a length-dependent neuropathy, um, if it's a patch that doesn't make sense as well, say it's not a sock distribution, it's a weird kind of pattern, but you also do not suspect something else, then indeed, you know, your suspicion goes down. And I would keep that in the back of my mind. I see, can I treat these patients? Do they get better? But obviously, if, if if I get stuck, then I, maybe that suspicion I have in the back of my mind comes a bit more to the front again, and I will have to rethink my clinical reasoning again. But indeed, you know, they, they, you will find, a, like you said rightly, a lot of sensory changes um, that are not potentially that relevant right now at this stage. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that the, the more comorbidity yeah. that you include in the presentation, um, the more likely that there are some, I dare say, erroneous sensory kind of findings uh, going on. Absolutely. I, th I think you I think you are right. And, you know, even with the you know, you still look for patterns, right? You if you find the weird patchiness, that's that's very difficult to explain with um you know, with a neurological picture. Yeah, you usually have a length-dependent thing. You might have something that follows an innovation territory. Um, but patients very often, and I'm sure you, you see that all the time as well, they say, oh, can you repeat that light touch again? I'm not so sure, you know? Yeah. And that actually already quite often makes me think, you know what? If there is anything, it's probably so marginal that it's even so difficult to detect and our tests are not so great. 
so maybe that is not even that relevant. So quite often what I'm actually looking for in a proper neurological deficit is quite significant sensory changes. Yeah. Um, so say if, if I ask a patient, you know, compared to the other side, you know, what is if the other side, you can <clears throat> feel it 100%, how much do you feel here? And they say, yeah, clearly only 70%. I mean, that is something. But if they say, oh, you know, just you may 5% reduce, maybe, maybe that, you know, it's just not in the kind of spectrum that our quite rough kind of test can actually pick up as well. Yeah. My, my general feeling is if... If a patient, without me prompting them, has told me that they have some sensory changes, and then that is consistent with my objective findings, I would potentially weight that a little bit higher than than if I'm looking for something and they're going, oh, maybe, maybe not, um, and it, it's a bit nondescript. That seems to weight a little bit into the thinking. I think you're absolutely right. And again, it has to do with... Does that picture somehow fit or is it all quite, you know, quite marginal findings that you have? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, sometimes we also have to say, yeah, maybe, who knows, right? Maybe these marginal findings are findings, but then do they have a clinical relevance for us in regards to the treatment or not? And quite often, I would say in my clinic, they would not change my management. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, maybe it's not even that important to think, am I now missing something or not? Because quite likely they would probably not influence my management. Mm. Which is, of course, the rebuttal um, that many would use uh, when it comes to kind of high degree testing uh, in, in those patients, I, I guess. Just while we're on there, just why I, don't, why I forget, uh, just for my own personal benefit, uh, Anina, because I've pondered this quite a lot, and um, so we get like people with big legs, you know, you know, uh, fit guys, uh, big guys in in the clinic. Uh, you're doing the circular assessment of of like touch. So what I found is difficult to get around all the way around a big thigh. So would you tend to what I've been tending to do is um, have the legs straight, do the top, compare it to the other side. Um, do the two amounts, then get them to bend the knees and then do it underneath. Is is would that be correct? Absolutely, I think it. Absolutely, I think uh, I do that quite often as well, right? Uh, or some people are not comfortable, or um, yeah, uh, in a certain position, and you change the position to test the back and the front in different positions. Absolutely, I think that that is perfectly okay. I still like to do it if possible around the leg simply because I don't want to miss if they have a peripheral nerve trunk problem. Um, but yeah, you can definitely split the circle up uh, in two. Yeah. And my last point to, to that, Anina, would be, let, let's say there is pretty obviously some altered sensation, like lateral thigh, shall we say? Yeah. W would you then, would you proceed to investigate that immediately? Or would you would you stay with the screening first with being mindful of that and then come back to investigate specifically afterwards? Like how much can, should we just go to the area uh, immediately? Yeah, exactly. So so that is a good question. And I think the question is, you know, is kind of pointing towards the problem of time sometimes, isn't it, in, in clinical practice? Um 
so my answer is that is probably a very pragmatic, right? And we do not have any kind of evidence in that area. Um, but my feeling is if you have a patient who is very responsive, very alert, you can get information very easily out of them. I would probably just quickly go come circularly from normal to abnormal and try and find what is the area and does that is that area somehow neuroanatomically plausible or not. But if you have a patient where it's already quite difficult, it's all not very clear, I might just finish my screening examination, try and puzzle the things together. And if I at, th at that stage decide that it's all just a bit too fluffy, then I might not spend a lot of time trying to map the exact sensory territory, if that makes sense. So I probably go on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but if... If possible, I would try and map it, but but sometimes that is just not possible because of time and because of um, um, you know communication with the patient, understanding, um, and these kind of things. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. And then, in last question on that kind of exam, how then if you're looking at that SMR and the the, the neurological examination. When would you put that in terms of doing the more mechanical orthopedic type testing? Because one thing I worry about with doing the orthopedic type testing, whether, you know, things like a straight leg raise or a Spurlings test or whatever that might be, is aggravating it. And then that then has an impact on your sensory testing. So do you do sensory testing first before doing that or, or, or does that I mean, confirm your symptoms either way? Yeah, these are all very good questions. I, I personally tend to do the neurological examination very early on in my objective for several reasons. Um, the first one is that it, it, it might give you some signs of caution, right? And it might direct your follow-up um, or you con your, your other tests as well and the dosing that you might need in the other tests. So if you have, say you, you mentioned spurling, right? And so if you have a patient who has a full-blown kind of C8 problem, uh, thumb is very, very weak uh, for the extensor policies, longus, um, it fits with the reflex, um, sensation is reduced as well. And I believe he might have a radiculopathy that might be a painful radiculopathy. I don't need a spurling test to kind of, you know, then sit on that neck and confirm a radiculopathy mm. because I kind of already have a pretty good idea of what mm. happens. And I will probably dose my examination a bit more cautiously as compared to if I have somebody um, where the neuro neurological examination is completely normal, I cannot reproduce any symptoms on neck movement, and I might do a spurling test simply because I go and chase, you know, I try mm. and find something. So the neurological examination as a first thing gives me a lot of information in terms of how to continue. The other thing why I do it first as well is a true neurological examination is not actually changing much um, over time in a short period. Yeah. So within my, within my examination, unless it's an ischemic conduction block. So if you have somebody who has an ischemic conduction block, it could be that you have a muscle weakness, you let them move and that weakness improves, for example. So therefore, if I do my neurological examination first, then I do all the other tests and I recheck as, you know, as an, uh, as an outcome measure, um, that, that kind of neurological finding that I had, it can give me an information whether I might be dealing with a more ischemic problem or not. 
So that's why I do it um, usually very early on in my examination. Yeah. Ischemic problem, do you mean something like a carpal tunnel, um, you know, which will then get better with moving it around? Is that the, the classic yeah. ischemic kind of, you know, so, radiculopathy? Yeah, exactly. But, but in fact, it can absolutely happen with radiculopathies as well. So you don't see it. Again, I would say this is not, not the common ones that I see, but you, you do see them. Um, and, you know, I don't know, those of you might be McKenzie trained, they sometimes explain that, right? They, they kind of say, yeah, you do extensions and then all yeah. of a sudden that weakness in the foot gets better. And you can explain that however you want. I personally would say it can only be two things. Either uh, it's, it's fear, right? And, and that motor deficit was not a true neurological deficit. Or it's an ischemic conduction block and you move and you, you, you improve that blood flow and, and, and then you have the action potentials going through. So these, I think, from a neuroscientific perspective, are the two kind of explanations. Yeah. And sometimes you do see that. Um, and, and I want to know that because these are actually the easier things to treat, right? Uh, compared yeah. to a uh, to compare to compared to a neurological deficit that is due yeah. to structural change in the nerve, yeah. like demyelination or an axon degeneration. Yeah, makes total sense. Adam, I believe you're 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 desperate to ask about uh, some some research stats next. So uh, chomping at the bit to ask about validity. I'll let you uh, uh, let you take it. And so yeah, reliability and validity. So it, I think in clinical practice, it's pretty clear that there is a potential issue with reliability, isn't it? That <clears throat> people are doing things differently and, and having different, and there's no consensus on like the best way to do an exam. Um, I guess we should be guided by the research. Looking at the validity as well, I think, you know, if someone has pain inhibition with testing, like how much are we, how much can we truly say that that weakness is related to a radiculopathy? So, so there's those issues in the clinic. I'm, I'm interested to know how that kind of maps onto like the research side of thing when it comes to reliability and validity, which is an underappreciated question, I think. Absolutely. Uh, and maybe a short answer. Well, I'll give you more detail, but it's probably not much better than what you just said, what you think happens in the clinic, to be honest, <laughs> from the science perspective. So there is not very many studies at that. We, there is some reliability studies, uh, including actually one of my very first studies that I published back in 2009 was on reliability of upper limb neurological examination. And we actually quite surprisingly found not too bad reliability for the upper limb. This was in a mixed population of um, radiating neck arm pain. So this was not just radiculopathy patients, but that is kind of the patients where you would do a neurological examination, right? Uh, and we kind of found that for manual muscle testing, but this was not grading M0 to M5, but it was just um, weakness or no weakness. This was a, a substantial um, intertester agreement and we found for sensory changing it was moderate reflexes we had complete agreement so we couldn't we couldn't calculate statistically agreement because for reflexes all like both testers said exactly the same thing then statistically we cannot do anything now this was better than um, other studies have reported where usually in other studies um, the, the reliability ha has an agreement rate which is usually fair to moderate. And that might have to do, you know, for example, one thing, like I said, we, we just simply said muscle weakness, yes or no. 
Whereas other the people then look, is it M0, M1, M2, M3, M4, M5? And of course, then it gets a bit messy sometimes. Yeah. Um, so this is for kind of reliability. Not terribly bad, but not spectacular, right, I would say. If it comes to validity, I think the literature is really difficult because the question is, what is the reference standard that we compare that to? And that is really something that I, I would love to ask you as well. But there is two systematic reviews that have been done, one by Daniel van der Wind, really nice review, and one by Taba, where they looked at the validity specifically of neurologic or, or different tests, including the neurological examination to detect um, radiculopathy, lumbar radiculopathy. Now, the tricky bit is always in these studies, how do we define the reference test? So what is radiculopathy? Now, I personally would argue radiculopathy is that loss of function, right? <laughs> um, which is actually the test itself that you want to compare it to, so that doesn't work. Um, so what these studies do is that they use um, the reference tests of imaging, MRI imaging, and I would strongly disagree that imaging is an indication for radiculopathy in many patients. That is not the case. Yeah. Um, or intrasurgical findings. And again, intrasurgical findings doesn't tell us anything about loss of function, which is the definition of radiculopathy. So these studies, to start with, are already flawed, I think, in terms of what is the reference standard that we define as a radiculopathy. Because I think a radiculopathy is a clinical diagnosis, which is a clinical picture, which includes the neurological examination strongly. Yeah. So, but if we look at these studies, what they basically suggest with all the caveats that I said is that there is not actually validity for a single measure. Um, so in isolation, they are not good to detect MRI changes of nerve root compression or intrasurgical findings of nerve co compromise. Um, some studies suggest maybe a combination of findings might be better, but there are not very many studies that have looked at that. So at the moment, there is not a cluster that can be recommended. But so, I think it's quite interesting. Sorry. No, no, you go ahead. Yeah, to, to interrupt you there is is that paper by Steins, mm. where she, she's looking at a diagnosis of sciatica. Yeah. Uh, and what they found is, again, like a cluster of things uh, were, were kind of, you know, increased the probability. Pain below the knee was the proxy right. for, for sciatica. But I think that the when the clinicians had a, a very high index of suspicion, like an 80% or more, that that greatly improved the the, the results. So, like, could it be something to do with rather than using disc, you know, root compression via disc, that there is something in comparing it to the confidence of the clinician's uh, overall picture, like the context itself. Well, exactly. I would absolutely agree. Right, that the reference standard should be the clinical diagnosis, because that is what radiculopathy is. Now, uh, Siobhan Stein's paper is a really nice one because that's what they used. But they didn't specifically look at radiculopathy, right? No, it was sciatica no. as such, which can include radiculopathy, but can also be a radicular pain or even a bit more messy, which is the straight leg race, for instance. Um, 
But I fully agree. Personally, I think the reference standard for radiculopathy is, is, is a clinical is a clinical mm. diagnosis. And that makes it so incredibly impossible to do research in that area, isn't it? Um, because, yeah, because the, for radiculopathy, the neurological examination is, should basically be the reference test, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's quite a circular thing. I think that yeah. when you speak to people on Twitter, there's still a really strong feeling that radiculopathy is the compression like the, 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 rather than the clinical entity, which I yeah. find a little bit strange mm. uh, to have that position. What do you think about that? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Um, so, yeah, it's a clinical diagnosis. I, I think that MRI scans, um, I mean, we don't even have a good definition of what compression is. Like, so the, there's a variability with the reporting uh, with the MRIs in, in my trust, which varies from impinging to abutting to entrapping, um, <laughs> a, entrapment to contact. I mean, how do we define what contact means? Like, you know, I, I, it's your subjective. So I think we need almost like uh, if if we are to use compression on on some level, I think it needs a better definition yeah. or indeed some kind of qualitative objective pseudo objective test so that the one of the mri studies when they looked at uh stenosis from above would they would count the visible degree of roots and they the amount of uh fluid that they could see the the csf mm. so i think that something like that would at least so we could agree on what frank compression is um and that that i suppose might be better than all of these in between. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. I, I, you, you actually hit the nail on the head, right? And you all must have seen these patients. They come to your clinic. They have very clear radicular symptoms. It's no doubt they have radicular symptoms. Yeah. And then you see the MRI and there's pretty much nothing visible, right? In fact, that is equally as frequent as false positives. Yeah. Um, so it's about 23% false negatives, 23% or so false uh, positives. And yet they have radical pain, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I usually kind of give the example of carpal tunnel syndrome, right? Everybody would agree if a patient has carpal tunnel syndrome, they have a nerve problem, right? But if we do MRI in the wrist of patients with carpal tunnel syndrome, we cannot see anything impinging, right? There is not something that directly contacts that nerve or impinges or deforms it. So why yeah. do we look for this in the back? Why are we so obsessed of seeing something deforming a nerve root in the back if we know very clearly that for a nerve to be affected, it does not necessarily need something that directly encroaches mm. and deforms something? And, and the most likely, oh, sorry, yeah. And then vice versa as well. You know, you get the, the, the visible entrapment, whatever we call it, compression, and no symptoms at all. We've all Absolutely. seen the MRI or the X-ray with the grade five complete uh, spondy, and the patient, the person was totally symptomatic, you know, exactly. asymptomatic, sorry, I apologize. And so that it goes yeah. both ways with that as well. So Absolutely. that carpal tunnel analogy, I really, that really resonated with me, actually, yeah. that hit home a lot. Yeah, and this this is where I really think we have to reconsider. You know, I'm nothing against MRIs, and I think there is a really good value in it. But if you have a clear clinical picture and the MRI doesn't fit, 
then doesn't then doesn't mean this patient doesn't have a nerve root problem necessarily. Mm. Exactly like what you said as well, Adam and, and Bob. Um, and I'm just wondering whether we are barking up the wrong tree, right? Um, because we are obviously imaging macrostructure, right? We are imaging something pressing out from outside on a nerve. But what we know is, uh, you know, from 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 the from the science is that. A nerve can be affected and can basically have changes inside the nerve, like say inflammatory changes, irritation, changes in ion channel, changes in myelination, axon degeneration. So maybe we should kind of think, you know, are we barking up the wrong tree by trying to image outside the nerve, but should we actually look what happens inside yeah. the nerve? Mm -hmm. And then I guess that then kind of brings us on to then, well, how do you weight your findings? You know, yeah. with the, if we're talking about radiculopathy being the, the clinical diagnosis, is how do you weigh that finding? You know, when you've got a suspected radiculopathy and your findings match their subjective history and they've got some, you know, what you'd expect to find, whether that's some sensory loss or some motor weakness or loss of reflex. Is one of these signs more important to you, less important to you? Um, obviously, we know generally when someone's got frank motor signs, it often it will indicate it's a, a worse, I, I don't know the term worse, but you know what I mean in terms of you know, radiculopathy. Yeah. Does one indicate more of a referral for you versus not one you check more frequently? How do you, how do you yeah. weight it? I mean, obviously, if somebody has motor deficit and, and severe motor deficit or progressive motor deficits, mm. then absolutely that is, uh, you know, depending on which clinic you have, but that will be a referral if you're sitting in primary care. Absolutely. Um, uh, you can, however, have pure sensory radiculopathy, so it does exist, and we just have to re remember that. But indeed, you know, if you have more to things and they are severe, say, uh, less than M3, I mean, that is absolutely highly clinically relevant, right, and needs to be followed up. Um, more testing, though, we also have to remember can be tricky sometimes because it can be pain uh, dependent. So sometimes you have patients that are in a lot of pain and we do a motor examination, they have difficulties or pain inhibition, and it makes it very difficult to interpret just the muscle strength itself. So again, it comes or it, it boils down to kind of having that, um, you know, clinical reasoning and making the puzzle fit or seeing whether the puzzle does fit or not. That's brilliant. And then, so when do you, in terms of, we've kind of covered your I don't know, normal, yeah, subjectively or normal objective exam. When will you then go to the more advanced exam? I know that Adam doing your course, there's lots of things looking at, you know, cotton cold and temperatures and, and sensory pens and all those type of things. When do you then start going down that line as well? Yeah. So in, in many, many patients, you know, in primary care, people would not find anything on a, on a screening examination, I, I would think, in a normal clinical practice. But if you do find something, that is usually when I, uh, when, and, and something that I think is relevant, that is when I spend some time, especially if I think that is relevant and I want to monitor it over time, for instance, to look at, is that progressive? So does it then need a referral? Or is that very stable? Or is that even regenerating? So that is the time where I will quantify uh, the findings that I have on my neurological screening. And for that, I might use things like that you mentioned. So I obviously will go M0 to M5 for muscle strength. I'll use the NIN scale for, for reflexes um, or, the, or you can use the Myo scale. It doesn't matter. 
Um, and I would quantify a sensory deficit if I think that sensory deficit is re yeah. of relevance. And then I might do things like, you know, standardized neural pen and I compare it to the other side in percentage or I might do von Frey hairs if I think that it's yeah. a relevant thing for me to monitor over time. Yeah. yeah. And then things like um, joint position sense or I know it's a bit different or two-point discrimination as well. If someone's got, you know, a sensory loss, will yeah. you then... Don't like the term bother doing it, but you know, I mean, in terms of because obviously that's going to impact the, the the sensory loss if you know doing two point discrimination. Yeah, I mean, I don't do two point discrimination if somebody has a sensory loss. It wouldn't give me more information than the light touch itself. Um, you know, people have kind of published on the two point discrimination and this idea of if people have more difficulties feeling the two points close together, that they might have changes in representation potentially. Um, you know, more we're talking more about persistent pain. But of course, if you have loss of function and you have a loss of innovation in an area and you do two-point discrimination, of course, this will be changed. So I'm I'm not usually doing that in a loss of function kind of presentation. No. Um, uh, what was the other test that you asked? Uh, um, there was the, the, the joint position sense as joint well position as the other one sense. as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, joint position sense and proprioception is something that I think is highly important, especially in uh, um, polyneuropathies. Um, mm. So that comes into the diabetic neuropathies uh, is, is one sign that happens um, very often. Um, in in you know, kind of more peripheral neuropathies like carpal tunnel syndrome, that is just not worthwhile looking yeah. at, really. Um, and I think even in radiculopathies, but happy to hear um, Adam's thoughts. I do not think that is the main kind of thing that I'm looking at, but in, mm. in systemic polyneuropathies, absolutely. Um, that is something yeah. that I'm looking at. And then, uh, so I was going to add a you follow up on that. Yeah, I think it kind of relates a little bit to that, Nina. Um, I mean, in terms of jobbing physiotherapists, uh, when we, when we think about, um, kind of peripheral neuropathies, uh, within the leg and masquerading, sensory others uh you know diabetic uh neuropathy potentially vascular peripheral uh mononeuropathies how, how much do you feel that clinicians like physios should should have an awareness and an ability let's say to assess a foot as a differential for diabetic neuropathy i think it's actually crucial Again, it might depend where you sit in what kind of, you know, clinic or where in the pathway. But I mean, you see so many in a primary in, in the private practice I work, you see patients who have not been diagnosed or they have diabetes, but have not been diagnosed with neuropathies. And you look at them and you think they have quite a full blown kind of bilateral length dependent neuropathy and and <laughs> apparently not been diagnosed. So I do think it is important we have that awareness. I also think it's important we have that awareness of, of vascular problems, especially, you know, with first contact in, in a clinical setting. That is, I think it is important. We do not have to be the specialists, right? Um, but we need to at least have the awareness that there are things, like you correctly say, said, that can masquerade and look like a radiculopathy or a nerve problem, but in fact, they are not. And, and we need to at least act on them or refer them to appropriate clinicians. Yeah. You must see them all the time, probably in your setting. Yeah, we, we certainly, there's certainly a lot of things that 
that don't fit. Mm. Um, but but we we communicate a lot with the with the primary care pretty well. Yeah. And actually, podiatry <laughs> worked just over the way. Yeah, perfect. For me. So I would occasionally ask some questions or maybe see if they could see a patient of mine. Perfect. Um, just while we're on those kind of more complicated kind of notions, my last kind of question, Anina Foot, is is around trade-offs. So I see, so I'm I see a very diverse group of patients uh, culturally, ethnic-wise, uh, kind of preference-wise. Um, two examples. So um, let, let's say uh, a Muslim lady who uh, I'm I'm a man working yeah. on my own. Um, and, and she maybe has, there is a need to do a sensory standard exam. Um, but but there's already a, a notion that that was being appropriate yeah. or potentially inappropriate for me as well. Yeah. Uh, equally, the patient who uh, is in too much pain and they can't lay flat, for instance. Like, how do we negate those kinds of situations? Is there a, a trade-off that you would use? Like, my general thinking is that we could maybe do the knee down over, including the foot, um, and, and and kind of then document that in the notes. Have you got any thoughts to that? Annette? You're you're absolutely right, and that that is what you know. In clinics, we have. I mean, that is the optimal thing that I think I would want to do, but that is not always possible in a clinical setting. And indeed, if you think about, as you say, Muslim lady. Um, you know, depending on where the symptoms are, and especially if they're distal, absolutely, you might just say, okay, I'm just looking knee to that knee down, and that's fine. Um, also, you know, quite sneakily, neurotips quite nicely sometimes go through uh, clothes, and you can actually do a pinprick sometimes even through a clothes, uh, through clothes, but obviously, you know, you need to ask permission to do that. Um, and you might then put more weight on a strength, right, assessment, knowing that you do not have the full picture potentially. Um, if you have a patient that is very, like, in so much pain, they cannot lie down, you, you can absolutely do things, you know, already if they're walking in, right, say if it's an, a lower limb problem, you might see how they are walking. That gives you clues uh, about potential, you know, is that below M M3 or not? Yeah. Can they even just stand on their heels or, or, or toes? That can give you things. Um, you can do it in sitting if they can sit. Um, you can basically do a neurological examination in a lot of different positions and you might just have to be a bit functional. Sometimes, you know, if you have upper limb problems and you cannot assess strength, but you might at least check, you know, can they kind of um, put their hat on the, or, you know, put something up on, on um, you know, kind of a shelf and you kind of functionally see, is that kind of looking like a massive neurological deficit or is that not that? But I think it's good to note down that you obviously were, you know, you're compromising in the kind of information that you might get. Um, and you keep that in the back of your mind that if something is tricky, you you might want to reconsider. Um, is it right that the uh, the dermatomes they converge more accurately, like in the foot and, and the lower limb, like is is uh, or are they more reliable uh, in the foot, like in the peripheries, the hands, yeah. and the feet? I, to be quite frank, I don't, I don't know from a scientific perspective, but that is simply because I haven't looked. But in clinics, that is definitely the case, isn't it? That very often, and that's why I do every single toe separately from dorsal and 
planter and every single finger differently as well. And that is exactly because I think it's much easier um, to, to for patients to differentiate that. And that might have simply to do with the size of representation that we have, right, mm. of a hand or a foot compared to, say, an upper arm. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree. But then, you know, there is certain nerves that don't go to the hand. And if we only test the hand or only test the foot, we will miss those. So think yeah. um, C5, right? Um, or think um, uh, things like axillary nerve um, or, you know, even antibrachial cutaneous nerve has no representation yeah. in, in, the, in the finger. So it's not ideal. And we just have to be then aware that we could not do an ideal neurological examination. Yeah. Amazing. I think um, just before we wrap up, I'm conscious of time. Um, last question from me was something which I think a lot of clinicians will find useful is how frequently will you then retest your findings with that patient clinic? So, you know, obviously, as I'm sure most people would be testing motor things more regularly, is you saying, do you do a full, if you've got a loss of sensation, will you do a full sensory exam every single time you see that patient for a follow up? Yeah. So, so again, it depends a bit on the setting. If I see a patient um, acutely, I would absolutely follow them up each time because I kind of need to know, are they progressively getting worse or not in terms of their neurological deficit? Because if they have a progressive neurological deficit, again, it would be a referral. Um, so I, I do test it regularly, but that might not mean that I do the whole lot, right? In the first one I have, my findings, I quantify them and I absolutely test those things as a, as a monitoring, yeah, like, like an outcome measure, but for neurological findings. However, um, you know, if something is more persistent, I might not necessarily do that every time, but I might um, do that, the quantification in, in bigger distances. So if, if I know this is a chronic problem, I know, you know, it's, it has to do with nerve needs to regenerate. Um, and we know the kind of regeneration times. I might just look at that mm. every three months or something like that to yeah. be sure, you know, is it going the right direction? The right direction. Um, yeah. Um, but these, these are the kind of things. When I also do retest the whole screening examination, is if a patient has a big change subjectively. That can go in both directions. So if they either say, I have this new thing and it's a lot worse, I might redo my neurological screening fully. Or equally, if they say the pain has completely gone, <laughs> um, but I newly have, you know, kind of trip over my foot or something like that, I would do that neurological examination mm. as well. Yeah, so if yeah. things change substantially, then I might redo it. Makes, makes total sense. I'm <laughs> glad you, I do similar. So um, you make me feeling quite good. So that's, that's always good. <laughs> so Anina, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to talk to us. I know you're, you're incredibly busy. So thank you so much for that. Um, I know that you obviously run a course as well. Where can people go and find out more about that? Where can people sign up to do your course? Where can people go to find out more about you? Please let us know. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously on Twitter, but I have to be frank, I'm quite a passive Twitter because it just takes so much time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we are running a course and in the UK, we run a course with Colette Reithalge and internationally, I do run courses as well. I, I should update my website, which is www.neuro-research.ch. And that is usually where I put my courses, but I 
I haven't done it in a while. Um, but yeah, maybe I should update it and you can have a look there. And indeed, I might put things uh, on Twitter sometimes or occasionally. But um, yeah, I probably should be a bit better at advertising things. <laughs> I know, we'll, we'll, we'll do, do, do our best to put it out there. And we'll put a link to that, your, your course and the website and Twitter handle in the, uh, in the show notes as well. So Fantastic. thank you very much for joining us. Boys, thank you so much as well for your input. I know Dave, you've had some Wi-Fi issues, so uh, you know, you've been a bit bit patchy. So he's waving to us. Um, but but thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening and we will thank catch you. you thank you, catch you on the next episode. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyable. Thank you. No worries. Loved it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Over and out. That was a fantastic episode. I know I for sure learned an awful lot on that episode. So thank you so much to Nina for taking her a valuable time to talk to her. Thank you to Adam for joining us along as well. And thanks to Dave for joining us. I know he had some Wi-Fi issues, so hence why he was a little bit quieter than he normally is on that, on that episode. So thanks for hanging around. And if you are still listening, remember, if you are a clinician and you are wanting to be listed on our back pain providers map, head on over to thebackpainpodcast.com and you can apply there to be listed on our website as one of our tried and trusted practitioners to help out people with back pain and other musculoskeletal injuries. If you don't already, please head on over to Twitter or Instagram and give us a follow at the back pain pod or at the back pain podcast. And please give us a follow if you don't already. If you know someone, a team member, a clinician, another therapist who needs to hear this episode, then please share it with them. It means the absolute world to us. Thank you so much. And we will catch you on the next episode. Over and out.